Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. David Gurr and Tom Keene here as we look ahead to 2018. And it is good to do that with Axel Merck of Merck Investments, of course, with a real focus on dollar uh, dynamics. Um, Kamal Sharma was with us from Bank of America, Merrill Lynch today, and he really discussed the ambiguity of the dollar right now. Is Is it ambiguous dollar direction right now? Or do you have a strong conviction into next year? Well, one of the themes I've had is that we are far more advanced in the hiking cycle in the U.S. than in the Eurozone. But unlike what everybody else is saying, that the dollar should go to the roof, because of that, I'm actually thinking the opposite. I think quantitative tightening, if anything, is going to expand risk premia, which is going to cause treasuries to rally, which means the interest rate differential is going to get less. I also think Draghi is hopelessly behind, and while he's not going to change his mind tomorrow, that means the dynamics are shifting more in favor of the euro, for example. Treasuries rally. We've got a collared treasury rally up to 250, 260. And then we've got others that suggest we could migrate to 3%. Where are you? I don't think we're going to go that high anytime soon. And partially is that at some point we're going to get volatility in the markets. That's going to get treasuries to rally. I think the tax reform is going to be disappointing. And, uh, and just look at the election last night. I think that Republicans are going to be less inclined to kind of align with the, with the current administration. And so all of that doesn't speak for higher yields. Now, maybe, maybe inflationary pressure is going to pick up a tad. But I do think that that the, um, if the Fed is on autopilot, that means higher rates, that's going to flatten the yield curve, and the flattening yield curve can happen various ways, but I don't think treasuries are going to actually move all that much. Uh, later this morning, Michael McKee is going to sit down with uh, Steve Mnuchin, and I imagine a question he could ask, I don't know if he's going to ask it, is uh, what this administration's dollar policy uh, is. Have you detected a change in it? Do you have a clear sense of, of whether we're seeing a continuation of that Rubin dollar policy? Well, it, it used to be, after Rubin anyway, that if you were able to utter those words that we have a strong dollar policy, that you qualified for the job. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> and, and nowadays, those, the, the Treasury Secretary Mnuchin has, has a strong view of what they want to do. Clearly, they want to boost exports, so clearly they want to have a, a weaker dollar from that point of view. Um, but they, of course, they want always want to have it both ways. And, and so ultimately, the policies matter. And here, the quick question is, are we going to get a trade war or not? Um, is it all just talk or is something going to happen? Um, I continue to think the biggest tail risk, I'm not saying it's the most likely risk, is that something is going to go wrong with China, some dispute over the South China Sea, and they're going to retaliate with some trade policy. Uh, right now, of course, everybody is trying to put up a happy face with, with the president's visit over there. And so in the near term, there's nothing on the horizon. We're broadcasting today from the year ahead summit. I saw from across the way there, you were sitting down with David Kotak, someone I know is thinking a lot about cryptocurrencies versus gold. Uh, he's considering himself maybe a bit of a neo-Luddite here as he struggles to embrace cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin uh, in particular. Where do you fall in all of this? Well, I'm, uh, in, this in this still nascent argument about the, the worth of cryptocurrencies. I'm based in San Francisco. I get calls about cryptocurrencies probably once a week by venture capitalists, lawyers, all kinds of folks. Um, I do think if you had a Bitcoin tied to gold, say, um, it's an interesting way to, uh, to trade it. I think the blockchain technology is fascinating. A Bitcoin backed by nothing. It's 99 all over again. That's that's kind of fun to if you if you wait, want to get wait, an wait, adrenaline wait. rate. Is it 99 all over again, or is it 1730 whatever in tulips all over again? Which is it? 
Well, the, the tulips with regard to Bitcoin, that said, I compare cryptocurrencies a bit like Netscape to the internet. Netscape isn't around anymore, but the internet certainly is. And so I think there's a okay. lot to be done with the blockchain well technology. There's going to be a lot of this hype is going to translate yeah, to value somewhere. Come on, you're a hard currency guy. Can you go long Bitcoin? Let's cut to the chase. Well, it's not a currency. Uh, and so it is, it is something called a currency. Um, it is a tulip, and that's going to wealth, just like many fiat currencies will. Um, but I think the, the question David had is linking it to something else. There is a blockchain technology linking contracts um, to to the decentralized ledger. And you can do that with securities, you can do that with gold, you can do that with real estate. Um, not all of these things are going to happen, but uh, very smart minds are, are, are putting their brain into it and, uh, and something is going to come of it. I don't think there's any stock or cryptocurrency you can buy right now to, to, to enjoy that, especially not a good value. So I'm not suggesting anybody buy Bitcoin. Um, but if I were uh, to, uh, for example, one thing I've been contemplating is build an interface between a crypto contract and the securities world. Um, say, have a um, gold ETF, link it to a crypto, and then go to your broker and say, hey, I want to take delivery and facilitate oh, that. So that would be something of interest. You know, it used to be easier. You bought 100 <laughs> shares of General Electric and put it in the desk drawer. <laughs> to be easier. The president is in China. I did trade weighted renminbi today, which is up, up. It's up 33% trade weighted renminbi since that historic July 2005 day. Have the Chinese done their fair share to go strong yuan, weaker dollar? The Chinese just had the People's Congress. They wanted everything to look good. They wanted a strong currency, sure. and uh, that's the policy of the day. When you look at China, it's always a, a step forward in reform and then two steps backwards. As long as the economy is running, they talk open markets. I mean, the, the most telling thing was that President Xi had a speech about opening the world up, and then towards the end of the speech, um, it appeared that there was market intervention to make sure the market goes higher. Now, so that is China for you. Um, it is a market that's still not being driven by the, yeah. by, by, the, by the broad masses, but by the same old drivers. And as long as that's the case, it's, in my view, unsustainable in the long run. If you're with us right now, Axel Merck out of Brown University, and of course, as he mentioned earlier, abode in San Francisco. I want to rip up the script here for a couple of minutes. How do mere mortals live in your San Francisco? <laughs> you're a prosperous guy. And this has come up in conversation four times in the last 10 days. Of, of well-meaning people saying, Ignatz, Ignatius got a job in San Francisco, where are they going to live, kind of thing. I mean, there was a photo out on Twitter of a woman with a legitimate job sleeping in a car in a parking garage. And I'm not talking about homeless, I'm talking about you know professional class slash middle class. What's going to happen to your city? Well, I live in Palo Alto, but work in San Francisco. The fellow who cuts my hair periodically lives in Tracy. That's like a 90-minute drive on a good day. Wow. Um, and, and absolutely, if you're, if you're a firefighter, police officer, it is very difficult to live locally. Any service provider cannot. So, uh, yeah, price is going to go up. Um, but at the same time, yes, you do have people sleep. In, uh, my, my daughter, one of my kids is going to community college, she's a high school student, and a third of the students don't have a permanent home. They do couch swapping, They're not, they don't sleep under the bridge, but they, they hop between friends to, to just pa um, get by. Wait, and, I did that my first three years <laughs> of Bloomberg. Well, exactly, exactly, but it's happening to an ever greater part of the population, not just the <clears throat> underprivileged champions of the world. Are you seeing cultural fissures as a result of that? I think back a year, year plus uh, ago, when we had a very stark divide between 
those new wealthy people in San Francisco and those who are in these service jobs who'd been in San Francisco for a long time, who are in the artist community, are, are we seeing that play out as acutely as, as it did you know, 12 to 18 well, months I'm, ago? I'm probably not the expert on, on local politics in San Francisco. From what I can tell, um, although I listen to Bloomberg Radio most of the time, not the local <laughs> radio station. <laughs> um, Good morning, I, it, Bloomberg it, it, 980. These, these things, they, there was this big wave about the, the Google buses and so forth, yes. and clearly there are always discussions, disputes. That said, Homewood, uh, Homewood, uh, San Francisco has always been a magnet for the homeless and others because mm. they provide many services amongst others. And so there it is very, very visible, especially when I walk to the office every morning and before dawn. Um, yeah. It is, um, it is right. a very, the contrast are very, very strong. One final question. When you're on Axel, we get a huge turnout from the Austrian economics <laughs> crew. They love it when you come on. Do you sense any Austrian in the new Federal Reserve? Absolutely not. Uh, Mr. Powell, I don't doubt his intellect, I don't doubt his integrity, but I happen to believe he's completely agnostic to monetary policy. And what I mean with that well, is... Does that mean he can become Austrian instead no, that means, of that, Neo-Keynesian? That, that means that he's on autopilot, and if something happens, the autopilot is going to come off, he's going to have a rude awakening. And what I mean is that historically, the lawyers on the, gov the governors uh, who are lawyers, which are most of them historically, they don't know monetary policy, they don't have their own staff, so they look at all at the presentation mm -hmm. of the Fed and sign of what the chair does. Now the guy is in charge, and I've no doubt he'll do something, but I don't think he has yeah. experience that everybody says he does. Um, it's going to be very interesting Okay, security's him. right over here in our food That's court, right. so they're ready to come <laughs> get you. Is the Phillips curve dead? Yes. Wow. In some ways. Definitive. How would you respond to Mr. Mnuchin today saying the Phillips curve is alive and well? Well, he's the Treasury Secretary. I guess his word counts. I, but I, I can trade. I can buy or sell. So I can always take an opposing no. view, I suppose. Very good. Excellent work. Thank you so much for joining us on the dollar uh, with some thoughts there of a lesser, not strong dollar. And, of course, Excellent work. Those are great comments in San Francisco. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it's the brightest of the social tests of our society. No one, no one can live. And we've talked about it in the context of real estate, people who are getting out of college yeah, and want to move there for Mitch jobs. Rochelle at yeah, PwC is great on this yeah, as well. Exactly. This is a very important interview, particularly those on Global Wall Street. You know Stephen Major. He's at HSBC. And he has been uh, smarter than most about saying, no, rates won't go up. Now's a particularly good time to speak to Mr. Major from our studios in London uh, this morning. This is uh, people begin to percolate of a higher rate environment. Stephen, have you changed your call? Do you give way to 2.4, 2.6, or 3% 10-year yield? No. Our, our forecast for the end of 2018, Tom, is 2.3%. Um, we haven't hit our 1.9 and 17 forecast, uh, but we're not there yet. It's still possible, of course. <clears throat> but I, I, I completely reject the idea that yields are going higher. Um, people have been calling for two and a half, 260, um, from a break above 240. At the start of the year, people were calling a break of 260 would mean 3% or three and a half. Right. And, and they're going to have to wait a long time. That's what is the why of that? Is it an economic analysis? I think of Michael Ferroli at uh, yeah. J.P. Morgan with 1.4% uh, potential GDP. Is it a yield analysis? Is it a flow yeah. dynamics? What's the why? Well, the 10-year rate is a function of longer-term growth. It's much more global in nature. So the, the Fed doesn't have a great deal of influence over the 10-year rate. 10-year bonds are priced off of the 5-year rate, 
five year forward, if you like. Uh, so we're thinking about you know, a five year start for a five year bond. Uh, the yield shouldn't be that dramatically above current levels. And I think this is what people are missing is that the Fed's almost certainly going to experience a, a turn in the economy to the worse at some point in the next few years. Uh, the peak in the rate cycle is much nearer than they probably want to think. So in five years' time, we could well be in an easing environment. Uh, in that case, it's appropriate to look at five-year rates that are lower than today's spot rate. That's how you can get a 10-year yield that doesn't want to go above 2.4. And, and to me, we're stuck in that range, maybe 2% to 2.5 for the next year or so. And Stephen, let me ask you about uh, how you're processing geopolitical risk uh, at this point in Europe in particular. been watching what's been happening in, in northern Spain, certainly paying attention to Italy uh, as well. How much of this should we make? Uh, how, how big a deal is what we've seen uh, in those two countries in particular? Well, well we, have to, we have to build it into our process. There's no doubt about that. But just, just, just as a quick uh, uh, comment on this, mm. uh, the 10-year rate, 10 year forward. So again, the 10-year rate starting in 10 years' time has gone below 4% and is pushing 370 in both Italy and Spain. And this has been happening in the last month or so. So whilst you've got all of the disruption that you can imagine in Spain, around Catalan in particular, and the concern about Italian politics for 2018, the uh, longer dated bond yields have been falling. Now that tells me all I need to know. Uh, the ECB has confirmed that they are low for longer. The ECB policy rate is going nowhere until 2019 earliest, and we'll wait and see what the world looks like in 2019. I, I, I suspect the ECB has missed the chance to hike this cycle. The data is good, right? The growth data is good looking back the last year, but it doesn't tell you where the next year is going to be. It could be that we're as good as it gets at the moment. And I think that many economists are finding this frustrating because they're trying to use whatever, a, some kind of neoclassical or Keynesian framework to, to try and guess where the growth rate is. And then from that guess on the growth rate, they're trying to figure out what it means for bonds. Now, the 10-year German government bond is 0.3. It doesn't reflect a 3.0 growth rate and hasn't done for a long time. It looks much more like a Japanese yield that is a handful of basis points. And so, you know, the Japanese yield has been stuck there for years. It's going to stay there for years. The German yield's got more in common with the Japanese yield than it does with uh, what's happening in Brazil or Mexico. <laughs> so, so, so that's the frustration for economists who find themselves somewhat disenfranchised from the process because they're looking at cyclical patterns trying to guess where the growth is and then trying to link the bond yield to that growth rate. The two are disconnected. In fact, the three things are disconnected. Uh -huh. Okay, so, so focusing on cyclical patterns when you've got structural and secular drivers seems a bit naive. Uh, Stephen, you've drawn a distinction here, listening to what uh, we've heard in ECB speeches between a, a focus on stock as opposed to, to, to flow effects. Why is that significant, yeah. what the ECB has been focusing on or talking about? Yeah, I pointed it out in the asset allocation that was published today uh, because I was quite moved by a couple of recent speeches. Most, most recently, Peter Pratt, the chief economist, he's emphasizing the stock effect and he's doing this with some authority. Markets have focused on flow because they're looking at monthly patterns mm. and net supply uh, outlooks. The stock 
it's not just the bonds held inside the central banks, which, by the way, are never coming back out. Uh, the, 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 the non-reinvestment decision in the US, which will later be faced by the ECB, is not the same as selling bonds at all. Okay, So those bonds are not coming out. Uh, the, the important thing is, is that the stock is not just the bonds held inside the central bank. It's the impact that the purchases have on the float. So the diminished float... Is, yeah. the main, is the main explanation for why Japan trades at three right. or four basis points and why bonds trade where they yeah. are. Steve Major, one final question. If we look at Navarro uh, Ross Economics, Ross Navarro Economics, a zero-sum society and antagonism towards China, yeah. if you were to advise the President of the United States today, would you tell him that China's never going to stop buying our paper and its price up, yield down as a China tendency? Well, you know, China and the U.S. have a relationship that's uh, very strong behind the scenes. Let's forget all the noise, uh, because the two countries need each other. So um, the Chinese buy U.S. paper as a choice, because they are basically importing a monetary policy from outside, whilst they choose to peg their currency and Mm -hmm. actually deny their people of consumption, if you like. The, the, the two countries are in a, in a relationship that works very well for both sides. So there may be some phony games going on on the outside, but I think behind the closed doors, when the serious people are talking, they all realize how much they need each other. So, so the fear of there being a wall of money coming out of China that, that would somehow disrupt the treasury market, mm-hmm. I don't think is one that we have to worry about right. for now. Uh, Steve Major, thank you so much. Greatly appreciated from HSBC. He's thank been you, uh, just incredibly prescient about uh, Laurie's. Of course, uh, I think the biggest interview of the day is going to be Mike McKee's interview with uh, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin down in Washington, D.C., a little bit later this morning. And it is a changed interview from 24 hours yeah. ago to give us perspective on that uh, right now timothy o'brien uh joins us i can say he's with bloomberg view i can say he's done this he's done that all you need to know whatever your politics is he is definitive on the finances of the citizen donald trump who has become president and is, is in china uh, right now tim the bloomberg view team is a sprawling team of of, of political experts, economic experts. How has your task changed today off the election results of last night? Well, you know, I think there's a lot of sentiment this morning that Virginia and the results there represented a wave. I, I, I want to, I guess, congenitally want to step back from received wisdom a little bit in moments like this. I, I, I'm sort of waiting for the midterms to be the real bellwether if we're going to see whether or not there's a, a groundswell uh, in response to Trump and Trumpism. Um, I, you know, I, just on the data alone, the demographics didn't change in Virginia, and you got big turnout. You had a, you know, a, a, a cascade in the suburbs, so it, it was well, an interesting race on the numbers. For to sure. review here, I don't want to go all Michael Barone on the two of you. You're the political experts. But to review, in November 8th of 2016, was the turnout issue that the Democrats didn't show up for Secretary Clinton? In 2016. Yeah. Uh, for sure. I mean, particularly, I mean, voters of color. That was, a, that was a huge issue. And I think you saw voters of color turn out in this race. Now, Virginia is also home to Charlottesville, obviously. And there was a, a huge 
uh, uh, controversy around the riots there that were racially charged. So, yeah, I mean, I think you saw a change there. I don't know if that's a change that translates to other states. I just don't know. We saw the president tweet uh, yesterday after these election results came in. He tweeting from South Korea or uh, in transit uh, that Ed Gillespie worked hard but did not embrace me or what I stand for. What does that look like as we look ahead to the midterms, uh, as you say? Uh, are we seeing more and more candidates on the Republican side doing that? What is that? What is, what is embracing this president fully? You know, David, I think the first thing it says is that President Trump in the, in the batting of an eye will throw someone under the bus if uh, it suits how he wants to spin an event because there's no question that Ed Gillespie clothed himself fully in Trumpism. Law and order. Um, uh, immigration. Immigration, yeah. embracing the Confederate statues. Um, and, and that's not escapable. He presented himself as a proxy for Trump and he got thumped. But again, whether that's going to translate to other races, I don't know. You know, I think every... GOP candidate has to think back to Mike, what happened to Mike Huckabee in Arkansas when he went, was proceeded having gone soft on crime and, and he paid for it in the polls and it killed a presidential candidacy for him. I think you're going to see that continue to be a theme that Republicans will hit, regardless of Trump. What are you watching for after we saw the uh, indictments last week, uh, as the investigation by Bob Mueller continues, as we've seen? Uh, Secretary of Commerce, Wilbur Ross, I don't want to say implicated, but uh, brought up in these Paradise uh, Papers. What are you watching for on the money side of things going forward? Well, I think that, you know, I've always kind of thought, David, that the collusion stuff is not a real threat to Trump. I don't think he's worried about it. I think where this may come home to roost for him in the Bob Mueller investigation is money, particularly around bribery and quid pro quos or whether or not there was obstruction of justice to, to mask collusion or bribery. Um, but I think that we're in the very early innings of all of this. You know, I think, again, the Trump moment raises people's temperature so high that there's sort of a wishful thinking around issues like impeachment or indictments or is this a wave in Virginia yeah. when we still have little empirical evidence of where any of this yeah. will go. What do you observe of the retirements? I, I was looking, CBS had a great summary of all the different retirements in House people becoming Senate, running for office for Senate governor, uh, whatever. Is it normal to see this sequence of Republican retirements or is there something special? I think it's something special and I don't think it's normal. And I think what it speaks to is that the, the GOP right now is struggling to establish a consistent and agreed upon identity around contemporary conservatism. And I think there's members of the GOP who are uncomfortable with the populist wing of the party. Yeah. And, and they haven't <clears throat> sewn up those divides. And I think okay. some, some Republicans are saying they don't, they don't want to be part of that. Bloomberg Surveillance spoke to the, rep the lieutenant governor of uh, Virginia yesterday, who is now the governor-elect, uh, Mr. Uh, Northam. Uh, doctor, I should say Northam. Doctor, yeah. And, and, and the idea here of did we see last night the same shift in the Democratic Party from no Bernie Sanders, it's really not going to work, and we need a more centrist tendency. Can you take that nationwide? Well, I mean, that's, and that's a debate that goes back to, to, to Bill Clinton and uh, the, the, the DLC going back into the, you know, the 80s and 90s. Um, I think both parties have always struggled with this issue of you campaign to your base, which is more ignited, more ignited than, than the national electorate, but you have to govern and campaign at the national level as a centrist. I think both parties have struggled with that, and they're both somewhat um, at sea about it right now. Tim O'Brien, thank you so much. The Bloomberg View, riding up a storm. Do we see an essay today from you? 
Not today, Tom. November, do we get to December? <laughs> Tim O'Brien, thank you so much. And I, I really should say uh, Bloomberg View with great overnight work, including an important essay from Al Hunt with his uh, decades as heritage of Washington. What do you got, And President Obama about? just tweeting a moment ago, picking up on what we were just talking about, that is turnout. And he said, quote, this is what happens when the people vote. Congrats, Ralph Northman, Phil Murphy, uh, New Jersey. Congratulations to all the victories in state, legislative, county, and mayor's races. Every office in a democracy that counts. So he... Pushing against what he didn't throw anybody under the bus no, as no. president <laughs> to Mr. Gillespie Fair enough. Fair enough. last night. David Gura and Tom Keen here at the Bloomberg Year Ahead event at our Bloomberg headquarters uh, in New York, looking ahead to Michael McKee's interview a little later this morning with the Secretary of the Treasury, uh, Stephen Mnuchin, down in Washington, D.C. A big focus of that is going to be on tax reform. That's a big focus for uh, every legislator in Washington right now, including our next guest, who was born in Glendale, West Virginia, took a detour down to North Carolina, was a zoology major at Duke University, eager to hear how... That training prepared her for the zoo of Washington, D.C., navigating all that she has to do. Uh, Shelley Moore Capito joins us now uh, by from the junior senator from the state of West Virginia, Republican senator uh, from West Virginia. Great to have you with us. Uh, Tell us a bit about how how often do you draw upon uh, that B.S. degree from down at Duke uh, many years ago? Well, the B.S. I I draw on every day. Uh, Zoology uh, only in Washington. Very good. Let me ask you sort of uh, where things stand when it comes to tax reform. We've seen the reports out this morning indicating that there might be a year delay here on corporate tax reform uh, in particular. We've been paying so much attention, uh, Senator Capito, to what's been happening on the House side. Give us an update on what's been going on on the Senate side and where things stand. Well, we certainly, first of all, applaud our House uh, cohorts for uh, plowing through. They've been hard at work on ways and means and, uh, you know, doing amendments and listening to arguments and, and I think making good progress there. Over here, we're going to be releasing the bill. The Finance Committee will release the bill around noon, I believe, on uh, tomorrow. Uh, I believe that uh, early reports, I, I wouldn't put too much stock into what it looked, what, you know, the, the rumors are that it's going to be until it's actually out. I think that it's, it's still, I wouldn't say a moving target, but there's still tweaks being, uh, being done to the bill. It will be explained uh, to all of us in great detail tomorrow morning. All right, so that's, that's going to happen. There's, there's a lot of pressure to get this done by Thanksgiving, by the end of the, the calendar year. Uh, are you optimistic that's going to happen? What are the indicators you're looking for that things are proceeding apace, that they're on track? You know, I'm really optimistic on this. I think that the, the fact that the House is moving quickly and is expected to have it on the floor and passed next week, uh, our Finance Committee will be... Uh, considering this all week next week and hopefully have a vote out of their committee next week, which really sets up the Senate floor for a vote either right before Thanksgiving or shortly thereafter. And um, I think that's the pace we're on. I think we'll stay on that. I don't see any leakage. Uh, I don't see any um, wobbly uh, wobbly uh, knees and, and, and shaking knees here. I think we're ready to move forward, mm. move big, and make a difference in, in the country. Senator, you received great acclaim a while back with the President of the United States where you said, quote, he should re-examine his candidacy. That was uh, in the distant past before a year ago. Do the Republicans after this election yesterday, do they have to re-examine their method to find the middle of this nation? You've been adept at that in West Virginia. Do the Republicans have to re-examine how they're going to get re-elected? You know, I, I, I see the elections that occurred yesterday as 
really, Virginia has become more and more blue, and a lot of that is about where the vote comes out in Virginia. You, you know that if you look at yeah. it, Northern Virginia and uh, south, Southwest Virginia is like West Virginia, so it's it's much more red. Uh, and then, of course, New Jersey has always been uh, a very blue state. I think we do need to keep examining all the time how we're presenting our message and and what kind of uh, promises we've made that we haven't uh, that we can uh, come come through on. And I think tax reform is that is well, that thing. And, and so I think you know, for me, I, in looking at it, I don't really. It's another election. You know, two months ago, the Democrats were having to re-examine what they were doing. Right. They well, could, you know, Senator, I look at this Senator from Maine, Olympia Snow. You've been able to find a middle ground. And we saw yesterday the Democrats, whatever the minutia is, they had a turnout and they seemed to find a, a middle ground with the lieutenant governor of Virginia, the doctor, and, you know, his election here, governor-elect and, and all that. I mean, where is the middle ground for the Republican Party or does it stay polarized? Well, I think that's a really good question. I think that... Uh our party, and, and the Democrats are having the same sort of issues, I think, uh, but our party is, uh, is and should be a bigger tent where we have all different kinds of, uh, uh, you know, more far right and more, more moderate and, and regional differences and all that. Uh, I don't think we're losing that, but I think we have to be careful not to because we can't carry the election at the end of the day with one or, uh, or the other parts of our party. It has to be a united front. And I think that's what uh, you'll see people sort of tightening their belts here, looking at that. We have to appeal to independent voters. That means uh, that, you you know, you, you have to prove you can get things done. And I think that's the challenge for everybody. Uh, Senator Shelley Moore Capito with us uh, here on Bloomberg Surveillance. Help us understand the particular brand of republicanism you see in, in, in West Virginia. Uh, it is something different. This is a state that was a, a Democratic stalwart for, for so long. What, what is a Republican voter like in West Virginia versus uh, Virginia or North Carolina or Maine, for, for that matter? What makes a Republican in West Virginia different? Well, I mean, I can go back through when I was elected. That When I was elected in 2000 to the House of Representatives, I was the first Republican in 20 years. It took another 10 years before an, another Republican was elected. Now, the only Democrat really left standing is, is Senator Joe Manchin. Mm -hmm. What has happened here is, but the thing is, if you look at the registration numbers in our state, it's still heavily registered Democrats. So I think what people have started to, to figure out, uh, at least the Democrats have started to figure out, is that while they're still registered Democrats, they don't agree with the direction that the party has gone at the national yeah. level. We still have a very vibrant uh, local Democrat party that carries a lot of courthouses and things. So I think um, we were, you know, and we, West Virginia was one of those states that was flown over, forgotten. Right. Our, our industries were just basically shunted to the side. We lost tens of thousands of jobs. And, and people basically just stood up and said, I can't, I can't take this anymore. Right. And that's why you see Donald Trump, who tapped into that, winning our state by over 30 points. Senator, I, I want to take you back to the last week of August. And I think of Rob Portman of Ohio and his leadership as well. You hosted Chip Muir, General Counsel and Chief of Staff of the Office of National Drug Control Policy. You had the courage to be in the trenches on heroin and opioid. What have you learned and what do they at, at the federal level in Washington need to do to address what you and Senator Portman are providing leadership on? Well, I think the opioid and drug crisis is just, um, it's an enormous 
problem where we are. I mean, we're at the tip of the spear, yes. Ohio, and, and, and Rob and I sort of have been leading the charge uh, with more funding. I think that's key. He is anyone listening? Was, is anyone really oh, listening? Yes. Or is it just oh, a yes. social issue? No, no. Uh, the one thing, when you ask me what have I learned, I've learned that it needs a spectrum of solutions. You can't just say, okay, we're going to fund treatment or, okay, we're going to fund law enforcement. It's got to be everything. And I think the president touched on this when he made the declaration of a public health emergency. People sort of um, said, oh, that's not enough. But it, did, it does bring the focus in and around uh, a horrible problem. I mean, I would recommend to anybody listening and to you all to watch a, a half-an-hour Netflix program which is called Heroin, and it is set in Huntington, West Virginia, and it will show you exactly where and how the problem is and, and the strains on a small town and families. So we are focused on it, uh, and, and I'm an appropriator, so a lot of it now is focusing the dollars where we need to put them. Uh, let me ask you lastly here, what more the, the U.S. Congress can do? You mentioned the president declaring a public health emergency. We've seen action at the local and, and state level. What, do, what are you telling your colleagues needs to happen uh, in the Senate? Well, I think there's a couple things. I think in terms of we need to uh, put the money in, into research. We need to find a non-addictive pain medicine. I just had a meeting yesterday all about with the VA and the DOD and pain and all the studies. But if, you know, if we could find a way to address pain without the addiction aspects of an opioid, that's, that's pretty key. I think also um, we need to fund drug courts. We need to fund... Um, you know, make sure naloxone is in the hands of our first responders. I mean, there's just, uh, it, it's everything and all things that we need. Uh, and, but, you know, we want to make sure also that the next generation, uh, the education aspect of it, I think, is something that we need to put a, a heavier emphasis on, that we sort of, we're focusing on the folks that are afflicted now, but we've got to make sure that the, that earlier generation understands, you know, when they make a decision to do something like that, how dangerous it is. Appreciate the time. Thank you very much. Let's talk again soon. That's Shelley Moore Capito. She's a junior senator from West Virginia, Republican senator, uh, as she mentioned, from West Virginia as well. And good to get her perspective on yeah. the opioid crisis, the election, and indeed uh, this tax reform well, process that's ongoing. I, I don't have any wisdom on the move to moderate or the move to the middle, but maybe we saw a little bit of that yesterday to say uh, the least. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.